just want to do a really quick review of what we talked about last week to uh, make sure we're remembering where we are and as we head on to today, this week's reading. Um, first of all, I talked about getting a grip on Ephesians. And just if you really want to get the most out of this study, there's a couple important things that are going to help you. Uh, first of all, you need to read Ephesians. Secondly, memorize Ephesians. Thirdly, study Ephesians. Fourthly, meditate on Ephesians. And fifthly, hear Ephesians. And again, I kind of explain that, break that down a little bit in the study guide. If you have questions about it, just ask me and I'll be more than happy to walk you through that. But that that's basically the best way. And you're going to get the most out of the study if you um, apply it that way, where you take some time and you actually go through all of these things. And it will help you make Ephesians more alive to you. So we also learned that the author was Paul. Talked a little bit about Paul and the fact that he was a um, he was a Jew who was born in a Roman city, which made him both a Jew and a Roman citizen. Uh, that he was formerly a persecutor of the church, but then became one of its greatest advocates and one that today would probably stand out as the most memorable of the church early church people from the Bible. If anybody could say, this guy's a picture of perfection, Paul would probably be the first person we'd think of. Now, I don't think he would think of himself that way, and as we look at his writings, we recognize that he he sees his own inner struggles, and he sees the things that are going on in his life, but at the same time, he steps into this role as apostle and says that, I'm going to take this gospel to whoever God tells me to go to. Um, we learned a little bit about Ephesus. Uh, we learned where it is in the world. Uh, that nice, beautiful, glowing star there. Um, it's in present-day Turkey, and it was a long ways from Israel. It, you know that probably one of the things to recognize that this was some. This was a church that Paul helped to plant, and he he did this, and it became an epicenter for the Christian world. Again, we mentioned the fact that uh, Paul lived there, Luke lived there, John the Beloved lived there, Mary the mother of Jesus lived there. Uh, a lot of very important people spent time in Ephesus. Timothy was a pastor of the church in Eph Ephesus. And so these are uh, important things to know about uh, this area, and then finally, we also looked at um, why, when, and why Ephesus was written. The fact that it was written about 600 A.D. and it was written while Paul was in prison, and that uh, it was written not really. Most of Paul's letters are written to rebuke something or to correct something that's going on in a certain church, or at least to address some kind of issue. This one was simply written to strengthen and encourage the believers. That's the only reason that Ephesians was written, was so that the believers in that area could really have an understanding of uh, this is what it really means to be a Christian, to live it out, to walk it out, to understand why you're saved, how you were saved, and how your salvation should affect the rest of your life. And so that's really what we get from Ephesians. So we are now into week two, looking at uh, a little bit more of the book of Ephesians. This week we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 14. So again, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And this is out of the New Living Translation. Uh, feel free to follow along either in your study guide or up there on the screen. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. 
He showered his kindness on us, along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. God's Spirit guarantees that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we could praise and glorify him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for your love and we thank you for your grace. This evening, as we look a little deeper into the book of Ephesians, I pray that you would help us to unravel just some of the beauty that is in this book, that we'd be able to see a little bit deeper, a little bit clearer who you are, that we'd have a, a greater grasp of your grace and what it means to our lives and how it can change us and transform us. I pray that we would, we would bubble over with praise because you are a good God. And you have poured out your grace, your favor upon our lives. Jesus, I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for the finished work of the cross, that we can come to you, that we can receive you as our Lord, and that we can walk in the fullness of life because of who you are and what you have done. We give you this evening, we give you this study, we ask that you would be glorified, that your name would be exalted, and that we could have a more intimate relationship with you because at the end of the day it is all about you Jesus we love you we praise you and we pray all of these things in your wonderful name amen amen well as we get started right here in the beginning we're kind of hit with a very big idea one that um, is very important and very, very important that we understand what it is and how it has an implication on our lives and the Christian world in general. And it's this idea of understanding election. Understanding election. Now, again, election is a pretty weighty term, and I know it's going to seem a little bit like out there at first, but hopefully I can help bring it down to point where we can all understand it and digest it and make sense of it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pull back up that verse, the first part of chapter one there, and I want to highlight a couple of words in this. Um, starting in verse four, it says, even before he made the world, that, that that's an important phrase. Also, he loved us and chose us. Another important phrase here is he God decided in advance to adopt us by bringing us to himself. And then finally there at the end of verse 5, this is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. So, if we're really going to wrap our minds around this idea of election, we, I need to introduce you to two of my friends. So, uh, here, here are my two friends. This guy's name is um, Jacobus, and that guy's name is John. They're, they're pretty cool. We got to know each other in Bible college. Um, Jacobus is... Um, his last name is Arminius, and John's last name is Calvin. They would be what 
we would call the fathers of Arminianism and Calvinism. It's also a debate called free will versus predestination. And really, these two men have helped to divide Protestantism for the last 500 years. Back in, back in the 1500s, these guys lived, they wrote books, they talked about the idea of God's grace. And from it, they have basically split the Protestant church. Now, the thing is, today, most of us wouldn't even notice it. We could go to a church that would be typically Arminianist, and there wouldn't be a lot in us that would say, wow, these guys are, are Arminianists. We could go to a church that's Calvinist, and wouldn't probably be a lot of us that would be able to say, yeah, this is a Calvinist church. Let, let me ask you this question real quick. Do any of you know historically what, you know, we're going to an Assemblies of God church right now. Do any of you know historically what the Assemblies of God is? Not really? No. Normally it is, yeah. Uh, by and large, the Assemblies of God is an Arminianist denomination. Uh, so is Church of God, for that matter. Um, but that's that's kind of the side we fall on. Now, the the big debate here is this I, these two ideas here, free will versus predestination. And how that affects us, basically, we need to understand two, two things that they talk about the nature. The first one is the nature of election. Again, we're trying to understand election and what it is. So it's important for us to understand these two frames so that we can get that. Uh, first, the nature of, of election. Arminians hold that election to eternal salvation has the condition of faith attached. So in other words, what these guys believe, what Jacobus believed, was this. If you're going to be, I mean, you are a Christian only because through faith you accepted Jesus Christ. That it was a choice that you made through faith. Okay? That, that's an important thing to understand. That this guy believed that we receive salvation because we made a conscious choice to accept Jesus Christ. Now, Calvin, he, he goes a little bit de deeper. Calvinist doctrine of unconditional election states that salvation cannot be earned or achieved and is therefore not conditional upon any human effort. So faith is not the condition of salvation, but the divinely apportioned means to obtain it. So, in other words, what Calvin believes is that if, you, if you're saved, it's because God gave you the faith to be saved. That you didn't choose it. God chose you. That God chose you, and because God chose you, you have, you have no say. God... God said, you're going to be saved. He gave you your faith. So basically, it's not, it's not anything about you. That last statement, faith is not a condition of salvation, but the divine means to it. In other words, you're not saved because you have faith. You have faith so that you can be saved. God gave you faith so that you can be saved. Okay? I know, a little bit weird, a little bit deep. Let's go on to the next nature, nature of grace. Now, Arminianists say this. Arminianists believe that through God's grace, he restores free will concerning salvation to all humanity, and each individual, therefore, is able to either accept the gospel call through faith or resist it through unbelief. So this is, this is what Jacobus says. He basically says this that the gospel call goes out to everyone. Grace is extended to all creation. And then because that grace is extended, each one of us either has the choice to accept that call, that gospel call to receive salvation, or to reject it by not believing that Jesus Christ died for us, or not believing in the Christian faith at all. That, that we have that choice. 
Now, Calvin believes something different. Calvinists hold that God's grace to enable salvation is given only to the elect, and is, it irresistibly leads to salvation. In other words, God's grace is only for people who will be saved. And then by understanding that, you have no choice. You're going to receive God's grace, and you're going to accept salvation. It's irresistible. Once grace is poured out on you, you have to be saved. Yeah, I mean, and so, so basically, what we've got here is this huge debate going on. Now, again, you're probably not having this debate with your friends. <laughs> you're probably not, you know, going down, you know, hanging out with people at the coffee shop and saying, "Are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminianist?" Like seriously, but but it's important that we understand it's there. It's important that we understand, and all a big chunk of it comes from that small passage that we just talked about. You know, again, I just want to reread some of the highlighted words I gave to you. It says, "Before he made the world." So, in other words, before we even had the choice, before he made the world, God loved us and chose us. The other thing is, it says. God decided in advance to adopt us, bringing us to himself. This is what he wanted. Okay, when you look at that, you can understand how we get the Calvinist belief. It's very, very strong right here. He's saying, I chose you. Before, before you even had a chance to choose for yourself, God chose you. Now, how Arminianists deal with this is they say God chose us through his foreknowledge. In other words, he knew in advance who would accept him and who would reject him. There are scriptures that support foreknowledge. See, so here's the big question that we need to wrestle with. Why does it matter? Why does this really even matter? Why, why, why have I just taken five minutes of our time to talk about Two guys who died 500 years ago. Like, seriously, why does this matter? Okay, first of all, it matters because this is a classic debate over the nature of God and of man. If you got the study guide, one of the question, two of the questions I ask you to ask about any passage of Scripture is this. What does this passage tell you about God? And what does this passage tell you about man? Right? Those are the two basic things that I want you to understand. Now, how you come to this passage affects how you view God and how you view man. Is God a God who has sovereign control that we don't have a say in our own salvation? Or has God given room in his sovereignty to allow us the freedom to choose? That's important. That's an important thing. And if we're going to study Ephesians, it's important that we recognize that this debate is there. That the, again, for 500 years, it's been a dividing line. In more recent history, it's probably not something that really, really polarizes people. But for at least the last, you know, the previous three to 400 years, this was important. Which side of the fence you were on mattered to people deeply. And so it's important we know that it was there. The other thing is we need to recognize that it's a divisive doctrine. Like I said, people cared whether you were on this side or you were on that side. That if you, I mean, seriously, people were tortured and killed. I wish I'm making this stuff up, but in the 1600s, people were tortured and killed if they believed differently on one side or the other. One of the greatest tragedies in the history of the church is that you, you know those medieval torture devices that you, you know you see in old movies or maybe read about in history books most of those devices were created by Christians to torture other Christians and this was a major one a major dividing line where people fought over um, we need to understand both sides though and biblically how they support themselves. Because here's the problem. Both sides support it, that, or can support it biblically. And it's hard to be pressed 
to one side or the other and say, well, this one is absolutely biblical and you can't, the other one is totally heresy. Or the other side, you can't do that. Both sides have biblical grounding. So that makes it difficult. But what our response needs to be then is we need to lovingly bridge the gap. That I don't think it's as important whether you're Arminius or whether you're a Calvinist. I think what's important is that we walk through this thing in love. That if we approach somebody and, and we just have a strong conviction, conviction on the free will of man, that we have the... The, the free will to choose, we should not allow that to be something that divides us against people who have more of a sovereignty of God aspect, that God chose us. I mean, either way, we're still Christians. Either way, we still have to have to get along with each other. And it's neither, neither view is going to get you out of heaven. God isn't going to stand at the gates of heaven and say, were you a Calvinist or were you an Arminianist? And, you know, get ready to flick you out the gate if you answer incorrectly. It's just, it's not that important. It's not worth torturing each other. It's not worth fighting over. It's something we've got to go in with love. Um, we need to acknowledge that both sides have biblical roots and that neither side is heretical. And since it's not a make-or-break doctrine, we need to be able to work with people on both sides that we need to be able to lovingly work with everybody. You know, it's, again, it's kind, of, it's kind of sad that this has been so divisive for so long, but I think we're getting to the point where we can see that, you know what, it's not worth it. You know, again, if you go into most churches today and you ask most people in most churches, are you Calvinist or are you Arminianist? Most people would look at you like, I'm Republican or, <laughs> or something like that. I mean, they'd be like, what are you talking about? They have no clue. And so, you know, we recognize that it's just not there anymore. But there still are some people that are just diehard. And we've got to recognize that and lovingly accept both sides. Uh, one of the places we get our theology from anymore is from T-shirts. And so I created this cute little slide you have to really be a uh, theological geek to understand these jokes that are coming up. And so um, I apologize in advance if you're not and you don't think it's funny. But I thought they were funny, so I thought I'd throw them up. First teacher or first T-shirt was for uh, the Arminianist. It says, God predestined me to be an Arminianist. I just thought that one was cute. Uh, the next one was for our buddy John. I freely choose to be a Calvinist. I just, yeah. They, that makes me smile, so that's why I put those on there. But here's the thing we got to recognize is that both sides can agree on this. There is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. It is a gift from God. It's what he wanted to do because it gave him pleasure. I mean, we can, we can see that from the text. This, is, this was his idea. Salvation was God's plan. It, it wasn't our own. It's something God wanted to do for us. And he made the means possible. Whether he gave us the ability to choose or whether he sovereignly drew, him, drew us to himself. It doesn't really matter. This is all God's idea. And because of that, we need to have just a sense of awe of how great of a God we have that he would want us to be a part of his family. I mean, I don't know about your family, but I know in my family, sometimes there's people you just, you wish they weren't in your family. <laughs> you know, there's, there's times you just kind of go, man, do, it, do we have to go over to their house again for Thanksgiving or, you know, or whatever. I mean, but the truth is, each and every one of us in this room, God said, I want you. I want you. I chose you. Whether he did it with foreknowledge in advance or whether it was through his predestination, his sovereign will, doesn't matter. He wanted us. He chose us. That's important. And because of that, we need to, we need to have an attitude of praise when we come to God. That, that's the next point that I want to bring out is that we need to be praising God for his grace. 
We need to be praising God for his grace. I want to give you another few verses here, verses 6, 7, and 8. And I want to highlight a few things here. It says, so we praise God for his glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Okay, right here, there's a whole bunch of grace going on. Again, remember, we, we talked about, we're, ta- we're calling this grace book because Paul just doesn't shut up about grace. He just keeps talking about it and talking about it all over in this book. And so we see here that, you know, again, he's talking about grace, who belong, you know, this grace was for those who belong to his dear son. It purchased our freedom. He has showered his kindness, wisdom, and understanding on us. So it should, it should beg the question, what is grace? I mean, we, we kind of flirted with that last week. But again, what is grace? What is grace? First thing that grace is, is grace is favor. And I don't know if I, I didn't. I just realized that. Okay. Grace is favor. It's all up there. You can follow along. But um, the first thing that we see is it's favor. The first mention of the word grace in our Bibles is in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 8. Actually, verse 8. Genesis 6, 8. But let me read verse 5 with it. It says, The Lord observed the, int- the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Do you get get how bad it was? Everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Ever feel like that's the world we live in sometimes? But then all of a sudden there in verse 8 we hear this amazing line. It says, But Noah found favor with the Lord. Now, most translations translate that word grace. Noah found grace with the Lord. It's actually the same word that is translated grace in the rest of the Bible. Noah found grace. And it's the first time that word appears in our Bibles. Now, the problem with the way we come to this verse sometimes is we sit there and we go, okay, everybody was just really, 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 really bad. Just totally bad everywhere, everybody, right? But then there's this really cool guy named Noah. He was really good. And because he was really good, God gave him grace. But that's not what it says. It says, the Lord observed the extent of the human wickedness on the earth. He saw that everything they thought. It doesn't exclude Noah in that. It doesn't say Noah was this perfect person. That he was a really, really good guy. If you read the next few verses, verses 6 and 7, it goes on to say that God was sorry he created man and wanted to destroy them all. But then Noah found favor with the Lord. Basically, this is the way I see it. Noah is just as messed up as the rest of them. Now, he may have maybe wanted to do more for God or whatever. But he, he, he wasn't, by and large, himself a righteous man. You can see his slips back in it when you follow him through the rest of the Bible. I mean, getting drunk, getting naked in front of his kids. I mean, there's he did some pretty stupid stuff. He wasn't perfect. But God gave him grace. God said, I don't want to destroy the world. 
I don't want to wipe out mankind. I need to find somebody to pour out my grace upon. And he saw Noah in the midst of all that wickedness and said, you know what? I'm going to choose him. I'm going to pour out my grace on him. And all of a sudden, because God's grace was poured out on him, he began to hear from God. He began to receive instruction. And then he, because God's grace was poured out on him, he began to obey what God told him to do. God, or Noah didn't become righteous because of the things he did before God's grace was poured out on him. Noah became righteous because God's grace was poured out on him and he chose to obey that grace. He chose to live his life by what was revealed through that grace. See, we need to recognize that, again, it's not our choice. The, it, this was not our idea. We, we don't get picked because we were the good ones. I think if any of us were to be honest, we'd recognize we're just, we, we were just as messed up as everyone else when we received God's grace. And it's his grace that began to change us. And that's the next thing. Grace is God's righteousness in us. Romans 3 Verses 24 and 26 read this way. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he declared, he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Again, that word undeserved kindness is our word grace. It's the same Greek word for grace. So in this passage, what do we see God's grace doing? Creating us to be righteous. It's making us righteous. God's grace is what makes us righteous. See, the problem with self-righteous people is they try to be righteous by what they're doing. They try to put up all these formulas. Well, if you pray this much or if you read this much or if you, you know, get on your knees this many times or if you do this many good deeds, then you're really, really righteous. Isaiah says that kind of righteousness is filthy rags. The only real righteousness we can have is when God pours out his grace on us. We accept that grace and we allow grace to have its working in us, creating righteousness in us. Because again, we can't do it ourselves. God's grace is the only thing that makes us righteous. So some keys from this passage that we need to recognize. First of all, God poured out his grace on believers. That, again, it wasn't anything we did. Now, we, we had to accept it. But in the end... That's all we had to do. We didn't have to do anything to earn his grace. It was freely poured out on us who believe. That grace, God's grace, purchased our salvation. And God showered knowledge, wisdom, and understanding on us through grace. That, I mean, it, none of this is stuff that we did. All of this is stuff that God did for us. That's what grace is. So we, like, like he's saying here in this passage, so we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us. We need to praise God because, you know, we were just as messed up as everyone else. But he poured out his grace. He poured out his love. He purchased us. He gave us wisdom and understanding and kindness. And it's only because of who he is. So that brings us to God's mysterious plan. And I'm going to go through this one a little more quickly, just because we're going to revisit this. But it's here in our passage. And I'm just going to really quickly highlight a few things in here uh, for you guys. Verses 9 through 14. First thing I want you to see is it says his mysterious plan regarding Christ. At the right time, he will bring everything together. 
to the Jews who were first and now to you Gentiles. God or the Spirit is God's guarantee. Well, I want you to see those things in that passage. Let me let me break that down for you. First, first of all, let me ask you a couple questions. Number one, what is the mystery? It, he calls this his mysterious plan. Like there, like there's something we need to figure out. My question is, what is the mystery? If it's if it's mystery. Why is it there? And, and how has God revealed it to us now? You're going to see this theme of mystery repeated. Paul will go on in the next chapter to talk more about the mysterious plan of God. This mystery that's been revealed to us. So we're, we're going to see more of this in the rest of the book. But this, this is what the mystery was. The mystery was this. That the Jewish Messiah was for all people. That was the mystery. The Jewish Messiah was for all people. Basically, it was this. Jesus came to fulfill the law of the Jews, and he also came to save the whole world. That it wasn't just for the Jews. See, this this was a thing that was very mind-blowing to that day and age. First of all, it blew the minds of the Jews because they're saying, hey, wait, this is our thing. This, this, this was for us. This wasn't for the Gentiles. But if they understood their own scripture, they would see time and time again, God saying, this is for all of them. It's for the Jews, but it's for everyone. He said, I chose you. I mean, When God chose Abraham, he said, I chose you. I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the world will be blessed. That was the first hint that this was for more than just the seed of Abraham. That it was for more than just the Jewish people. But the Jews never got their mind around that. The other thing that was kind of mind-boggling to the Gentiles was that, why would a Jewish God die for me? I mean, seriously. If you were in that mindset, they, they had all their little gods. Every region had its own god. Ephesus had a huge temple to Diana, the goddess of fertility. Everybody, and gods were regional. That this area worshipped this God. This area worshipped that God. That area over there worshipped that God. And usually, you were at a war against people who thought differently, who had different gods. But here, this Jewish God came down and died for everyone. That was mysterious. That was a little bit different. That's what he's talking about. Again, going back to our scripture, it says this is his mysterious plan, and this is it, that he will bring together everything. The Jews who were first, and now you Gentiles. But how do we know this is real? How do we really know that God is really doing this, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles? How do we know that? Well, the next question we have to ask is, what does the Holy Spirit guarantee? It says there at the end, verse 14, God's, the Spirit of God guarantees that we will, inter- we will inherit his promises. Okay? So basically, what does the Holy Spirit guarantee? It guarantees that all people can receive salvation. All people can receive salvation. That's what it guarantees. So, uh, just just to hit this home, I want to take you to a story. <clears throat> it's in the book of Acts. It's a story about how Peter goes to this man named Cornelius' house. Now, you got to understand, Cornelius was a Roman guard, Roman centurion, which basically may, meant he was unclean and that you were not to go into his house if you were a good Jew. But God told Peter to go to Cornelius and to preach the gospel to his house. So Peter obeys. Let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 46. 
Acts 10, 44 through 46. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So all of a sudden, Peter's talking to these Gentiles or the, who were not Jews. They weren't a part of the Jewish mindset. They weren't who the Jews thought that Jesus had come for. And Peter is preaching Jesus to these Gentiles. And while he's still talking, he doesn't even get to the part to explain who the Holy Spirit is or what the Holy Spirit was for. But all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit fell on that place. And they began to speak in tongues. They began to praise God. And the Jews were amazed. They're like, what in the world? This was not supposed to happen like this. These guys are unclean. They're probably eating pork right now. They probably still got pork stuck in their teeth. This wasn't for them. But here God just pours it out on them anyways. So anyway, Peter gets back to Jerusalem after this whole escapade. And the Jewish believers are mad. They're like, what, what did you do? You shouldn't have been in his house. You shouldn't have been preaching this. You shouldn't have been doing all of this. But we pick up the story again here in Acts chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. This is what Peter says to them. As I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought the Lord's word thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave the Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Do you catch that? Why, why was the Holy Spirit poured out here? So that people could see that this gift wasn't just for the Jews. That, that salvation was not just for the line of Abraham. That Gentiles, that everyone could receive salvation. That's what it means there in verse 14 where he says the spirit is God's guarantee. They couldn't argue. They, they were arguing. They were mad. But all of a sudden when they heard about how God's spirit fell on them, on the Gentiles, they just began to praise God. They said, you know what? We can't argue with that. If God was going to pour out his Holy Spirit on them, then God must want them to be a part of this plan too. So that's, when we look at the Holy Spirit, we need to recognize that's what he's there for. He's there in part to guarantee that we have an inheritance coming. That, that if we have received the Holy Spirit, that if the Holy Spirit has come in and changed us, that if God's grace has transformed us to be more like him, then it's his intent to take it all the way. That eventually one day we will stand before God receive the salvation and fullness and enter into the kingdom of eternal life. But God's Spirit was given to us as a guarantee of that. That's why it was given, so that we could have that guarantee. So basically, just wrapping it up real quick. Understanding election is just this. This was all God's plan from the beginning. We didn't make it up. It wasn't our plan. It was God's plan. Praising God for his grace because, because he did choose us, because he did pour it out on us. And recognizing that God has a mysterious plan, that, that he's, he was up to something and he's still up to something. He's still doing something. And we can begin to understand a little bit more of what that plan is. That's, that's what this was all about. That's what... That's what this is a, just the beginning, just the tip of what grace is all about. That God chose us. That he had a plan. And we can praise him for that.
before we, I know we're kind of getting a little late, but before we get too deep or into anything else, I, I want to ask, um, and I guess I should have given you full warning of this, uh, but, you know, I'll just throw it out there and see what happens, um, and just be forewarned for the future that this may happen again. I just I want to give you an opportunity if during this week as you've looked through these passages if something spoke to you because here's the thing I just I went through some pretty weighty heavy stuff right here right I mean Calvinism Arminianism you're like what what's that all about who cares you know t-shirts were cool but I don't really quite understand what was going on there when we come to these passages I, I want to try to help you get some of the deep stuff that may not be right there on the surface and help you understand what else there. But the thing that I recognize is it doesn't matter where we are. God speaks to us through his word. And so I want to give you guys some opportunity to share if God has spoken to you anything. Um, just to give you kind of a precursor why I want to open this up this way. Um, I, I started back when I was a youth pastor doing something similar to what I'm doing now. I started uh, with the book of Matthew and it was a side thing. On Wednesdays, we did our normal Wednesday night group. But for anybody who wanted, I opened it up that we would do an intensive Bible study together. And we started with Matthew because I figured, hey, let's start with Jesus. That sounds like a good place to start. First week, we had to go through all the begats. And so-and-so begat that person, and this person begat that person. And that person had two wives and three children and one half-cousin, and that person begat that person. You know, and all this weird stuff right there in the beginning of the book of Matthew. And you look at that, and you're like, why is that there? And I knew the question was going to come up, because I was going to give time for questions at the end. I knew the question was going to come up. Why is that in the Bible? That is so confusing. Why is that there? And I had my theological answer. You want to hear the theological answer for why that's there? It's because the book of Matthew was written to Jews. The Jews needed to see that David came through the line of David. Sorry, that Jesus came through the line of David so that he could be the true Messiah. If he didn't come through the line of David, he would be illegitimate as the Messiah. So Matthew had to put in his lineage so that they would recognize he was the Jewish Messiah, the true Messiah from the line of David. That's why that was important. That's why it's there. But I also decided before I answer any question, I would see if anybody else had anything from it so we got done reading through our, going through a little bible study got to that part somebody raised their hand pastor gerald why is that in there i was like well that's a great question did anybody get anything out of this and again we had seniors down to seventh graders in this room this little seventh grade girl raises her hand she's like i got something out of it i was like okay lacy go ahead and share and Lacey sat there, seventh grade girl, and she said, as I read those names, some of the names started to ring out to me. Names like Abraham, names like David, names like Solomon. And when I heard their names, I remembered the promises that God had given these people. And then all of a sudden, right there at the end, I see Jesus the fulfillment of all of those promises. And I recognize it doesn't matter how long it takes God, God is faithful to his promises. And I, along with everybody else in that room, were sitting there going, because I had the great Bible college answer but she had touched the heart of God. She had seen something. I'd read that thing a hundred times and never saw that. Probably more than that. And never saw what she saw. And it was powerful. And I can't read that passage the same way ever again. Because all of a sudden I see the promises. I see God's faithfulness. When all I ever saw before was a bunch of begots. So with that 
as the precursor. Did anybody get anything out of the reading this week that you'd like to share? Anything else? Oh, cool. I'll try to, you know, I'll try to give more room for this uh, as we go through it, because I don't want to just be a talking head up here. Because, because again, God's word is powerful. It doesn't matter how deep you dig. It doesn't matter how how much you just skim over it. There's powerful things to be obtained every time we come to God's word. And that's why I want you writing stuff down, why I want you writing down your own observances, because it's a sad thing that God has such a rich fullness there, and so many times we just read it, and God speaks to us, and, oh, that's cool, and then we forget. I think it's important that we capture what God has spoken to us because, you know, there is powerful things there. There, there are deep truths. And if we're faithful to capture them, God's going to continue to give us more. And I think it's just that principle where it says, if you're faithful with the little things, I'm going to entrust you with greater things. So if he's speaking to us through his word, we need to capture that. We need to hold on to that. That's why, again, I've given you the study guides where you're not just putting down sermon notes, but you're putting down your own personal observations because it's important. Not just what I think about what the passage says, but what God is revealing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this day. Again, we thank you for your love and we thank you for your grace. And tonight as we stand here, once again, we are overwhelmed with how great you are. With how much you have desired to pour out upon us. To fill us with your grace. And so tonight we just, we say, God, be glorified in us. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. You've, you've given us no other option but that we simply would choose you and accept what you've done. And so tonight we just say, God, be glorified in us. Let us accept your grace. Let us walk with it. Let it change us so that we can be righteous in your eyes. It's nothing we can ever do. It's nothing we can ever muster in our own strength. We will only be righteous to the degree that we allow your grace to change and transform us. So tonight, we invite you. Let your grace overwhelm us again. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. We lift up your name and we say, God, be glorified. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.